Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to Performance Anxiety, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We are lucky enough to have spent an evening with producer and chef Ted Nicely. Ted talks about issues flying, working with artists like Tommy Kane, Fugazi, Shudder to Think, Girls Against Boys, The Dead Milkmen, and so many more. And he also tells us about some lesser-known bands that you should know, like New Rising Suns, Future Kings of Spain, and Backbone Party. He's recorded in David Gilmore's mansion with Mickey Most's Gibson J200 that Donovan used to record Mellow Yellow and had Luther Vandross in the booth with him. And we haven't even mentioned his culinary career yet. So give him a follow on social media for great music and delicious food. And follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, review, and check out the other great shows on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Now let's get right into Ted Nicely on performance anxiety. <laughs> let's try and make it good if I begin. Uh, okay, ready? All right. Hi, this is Ted Nicely, and I'm on performance anxiety with Mark Shea. And, and did I pronounce last name right? Okay. And if you have the time... Please check out. I, 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 well, no, let me start over. Uh, I've, I'm a producer. I've produced three records with Fugazi. Uh, I've done three records with Girls Against Boys. I've done four records, actually, with Girls Against Boys, now that I think of it. And I did the uh, Pony Express record by Shudder to Think and there's some other ones like The New Rising Suns which you can hear on Bandcamp and Backbone Party which you can also hear on Bandcamp so check them out I've been to Dallas a few times Austin once I think yeah for uh, um, what is it called South by Southwest South by Southwest yeah. yeah in like the prime of the 90s right? yeah. 95 I guess you know <laughs> yeah. I don't remember well, really nice. anything about Texas I was about two and a half or three when they, when we moved to New Jersey from right. there so my dad PC so for me it was kind of for me it was kind of an iconic visit because uh, I was a big Kennedy buff from, uh-huh. you know I mean when I was a little kid you know he's killed and yeah so being around that Texas um book depository place i mean i've always found like i i 
produced a single by this band called the Grifters for Sub Pop. Okay, yeah. And and I went to Memphis, and the lead singer took me to, um, took me to the site where King was assassinated, the hotel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can you can go right across from it, you know, and see the balcony and. They play gospel music and the doors kind of open. It's it's oh, wow. such a surreal vibe, man. It is. Wow. I've been to Memphis a handful of times, and usually just passing through to tra- travel somewhere for business or heading down to Alabama to see family or something. So, so I don't know Memphis gotcha. all that well, but uh, it, that's one of the one place I would like to go because I, like I said, I've only gone through it, and it always looks really cool, but. I never had a chance had, to stop and spend any time there. Go ahead. I said never you had never a chance had to stop any to time. Stop? No, yeah, exactly. No, man, I'm telling you, I had the most frightening plane trip to and back. I was on a propeller plane. Oh, boy. Seated maybe about 50 or 60. And... Um, flying back out, I guess it was beginning of summer or something and it might have even been summer i was living in new york and brooklyn okay and and i uh in brooklyn heights and i and man the plane flight back was just oh my god if i ever get out of this plane i will <laughs> never ever get back into a propeller plane oh man you know it's just i mean I, I i walked in there and it was really hot you know it just thunderstormed oh, there yeah and but the sun was out and they turned on the air conditioning and all this vapor was pouring out of the air conditioning <laughs> yeah. ports and i thought jesus man i'm gonna buddy holly it oh no <laughs> you know? oh, oh man. God, man see i grew up my grandfather was a pilot and so i grew up flying all over the place in in a plane that sat you know like seven or eight people so mm-hmm. we would we would fly we would go we, when we were living in new jersey we would get in his uh he had a, a cessna 310 and we would uh it's dual engine but it, it sat like uh i don't know I think there's five, seven people, maybe, you know, comfortably mm-hmm. squeeze an eighth mm-hmm. in there if you really had to. But uh, I remember flying from New Jersey down to uh, Marco Island, Florida, just in that thing. Yikes. Yeah, we'd st- that's one of the areas we would, we would hit Memphis, and that'd be like where we stopped for the evening and then get back in and fly the rest of the way the next day. And I, I loved it. And when I was like... I don't know, 10 or so, he called me up to the front and my dad was usually the co-pilot and he kicked my dad out and he let me fly the plane once. It was awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love flying. You know, it doesn't really bug me. It's just uh, sometimes the um, the extra, you know, something happening like, oh, man, I've got some hilarious plane stories from the... <laughs> Oh, man, from boarding and stuff, you know. I mean, I, I, are we are we taping now? Oh yeah, we are definitely taping. Oh great! So. Oh great! Uh, <laughs> do you want me to continue? Absolutely. This 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 whole show is just about great stories. It doesn't even it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's why I, I, I was really attracted to it. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> this is funny. Uh, we were out in Los Angeles making. I'm pretty sure 
we were making the places that are gone video when we were on Geffen. Oh, with Tommy King. Yeah. Right. We, Tommy was, no, it was Listen to Me. We did the second video, Listen to Me. Okay. February and and we were coming we were getting ready to come back and Tommy was going to stay there to do some post-production stuff okay with the director and and so the drummer Doug Tall and the other uh, the rhythm guitarist uh, second vocalist Billy Connolly and I uh, were went to the airport so, you know, we're waiting for the plane. It took forever to get on this plane. And it turned out that Doug Tong, the drummer, was very, very, um, he had a lot of anxiety about flying. Okay. And even taking like a lorazepam didn't really do the job, you know? Right. But, but so anyways, we, were, we, were, we had to wait about three hours to board the plane. And then we get on the plane and... As soon as we walk into our right is Mick Jagger with two bodyguards on either side of him. Wow. And we're kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so we go back and sit down, and then like 45 minutes later, I'm sorry, we're going to have to disembark the plane passengers, blah, blah, blah. We get off the plane, and Doug was like, man, I'm, I'm not getting back on that, <laughs> you know what, plane. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was a little nervous, too, you know, but, but I wasn't totally freaked. Okay. And anyways, I said, okay, look, it's like this. If, if we, you know, this is over like an hour. And, and I said, look, if we go, they call us back to board. And if we go to the, uh, we get on the plane and Jagger isn't on it, then I'm getting off. I'll call up Jeff and we'll go back in. So we get on the plane, Jagger is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was flying via Detroit, where there was a stopover at that point. And then to New York to um, be at Saturday Night Live because Jerry Hall, his wife, was um, hosting the show oh, on the, wow. the Valentine's Day show. So, oh man, we get off. We get off the plane. My bass is already on the plane. I oh, think, geez. Uh, the the um, the guitarist uh, Billy's guitar is on there. You know, blah blah blah. Luggage, right? And and anyways. We went back to the hotel, the same hotel, and, and hadn't called up T, Tommy. And so I opened the door, and Tommy's getting dressed to go to the thing, and he turns around, and he just goes, sheet white. He <laughs> says, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Man, are you ghosts? What? <laughs> really? He was like, am I seeing a ghost? Oh, and my. I said, no. And I had to explain what had happened. Oh, jeez. 
<laughs> it was like, I felt so bad, you know. Oh, I mean, I was like, God, I just scared the bejesus out of him. We did. And so then, and so then we, we, the next day we get on the plane, we fly back. It's been horribly long, not a lot of sleep and, oh God, you know, the whole dealing with, you know, having recorded in Montserrat and it's just been a month of craziness. Oh, geez. And, and anyway, so, so we flew late again. I don't know why. Maybe it was the only plane we could. We get to D.C., where I was living then, at like 1240, and they're unloading the plane. My luggage and everything comes off, but my base in there. Oh. And, oh, no, the luggage didn't come off. And I, we didn't know if my base was there. And... And then I think my base came down the chute, but none of my clothes were there. I was really, really pissed off. And Doug, who was back on land and probably took two or three lorazepines, he said, well, it's okay, man. Don't be there. And I said, I took my base case and I threw it across the fucking, fucking, wherever it is, the welcome place. And I said... Yeah, well, you were fucking scared to get on the goddamn plane if Jacko wasn't on it. <laughs> you know, I want my fucking clothes. <laughs> I'm tired of this shit. Oh, man, so you should have said Jacko and Bill felt really bad, and I felt really bad. But it was comical. It was one of the better things that ever happened <laughs> as far as, like, hijinks. You, know? so you should have sent make a, a bill for your clothes. <laughs> uh, they brought him there really early the next morning. It was fine. Oh, I just, I'm the guy. I, at that point, I was really the kind of person who, you know, had reached their saturation level with mishaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I wanted, some of the things that I want to find out about you, I want to know yes, a lot more about how you got into this whole thing in the first place um when did music first really make an impact on you did you did you have a lot of music in the house growing up um not extraordinarily but i um my first musical memory is um bouncing around on my brother chris's bed and he was probably 14 so that I was probably six, oh, something okay. like that. Okay, he's eight years older than me, and um, he was playing Blue Moon, probably okay. the Marcel's version. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then, not long after that, my dad came. I remember being around the dinner table on a Friday night. My dad played. Big Bad John by Jimmy Dean. Oh, yeah. And uh, I guess he just bought some singles. Uh, Big Bad John, Jimmy Dean, The Ballad of El Paso by Marty Robbins. Oh, yeah. I love Marty Robbins. And, and then um, Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. That's good and stuff. I've always been a sucker for that song. Yeah. You know, I loved it. Like at some point, much, much later, you know, in probably 96, uh, me and uh, an engineer I was working with, Carl Glanville, 
he, he's British and we were going to, I don't know, this is pretty crazy. I, I was like, why don't we do a split LP and I'll do like Chance Meeting by Roxy Music and some other songs, definitely Ring of Fire, because we had one of these Kurzweil synthesizers. Okay. You know, um, it's almost like a, it's kind of a sampling keyboard. Okay. Had great mariachi horns. And, oh, cool. And, and then um, he was going to do some really wild ballad by some British, like, solo vocalists or whatever. But anyways, Johnny Cash... Everything by Johnny Cash made a big impression on me, but I mean the pivotal point of of getting involved in music was 1964's seeing the Beatles. Ah, uh, okay. On on Ed Sullivan. Right, right. The famous and yeah, and, and before then, you know, like I guess the Beach Boys were happening, and you know, certainly a lot of R and B stuff. Okay. Um, and then. Uh, my brother, Bruce, my middle brother, got a guitar. My father wouldn't give me a bass. Yeah. And, uh, and because that's my instrument. And, but my brother, Bruce, kind of was very, hmm, I really want to be a guitarist. Now I want to be a bow hunter. Oh. Or I want to <laughs> collect motorcycles or something. <laughs> and so I just went over and picked up the guitar and started learning how to play. And a friend of his taught me more. He had some Mel Bay, you know, chord books. Oh, and yeah. I had a I had a pretty good ear. I, you know, a very good ear, actually. I mean, it just turned out that way. And I could just remember things. I could hear something and play it. Okay. And, and then... Um, I guess next stage was like doing a band for a talent show in elementary school. We were going to be called Danny and the Demons. I mean, we were going to be called Teddy and the Tornadoes, but we, I didn't like that. I didn't want to be named after it. So we changed it to our drummer's uh, first name, Danny, uh, Danny Gilmore. And uh, it was called Danny and the Demons. It was just three guitars, uh, oh, um, wow. a drum set. And we mainly played instrumentals, including one that we wrote called Moving On that was just a piece of every instrumental song we had already played. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and then we did For Your Love by the Yardbirds, and I sang it. Oh, wow. And awesome. um, then I, I think a thing in talent show, and then there were some... Um, I, I, I met a fellow named Jimmy Barnett who died last year, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And um, he was he was about, uh, I don't know, eight years older than me or something. And um, he uh, was really into recording. He'd already been in some semi-legendary DC bands. I, okay. I, you know, I wish I could remember the names of them. Um, you know, I mean, there was, the British walkers were around then and everything okay. had been around then more earlier in the 60s. I saw him play in a 60s band at, at my brother's school or maybe my junior high or something. I can't remember. Something like that. And yeah. and then, um, so he was really into recording. He was a great lead guitarist. And I had switched over to bass by then. I started out on guitar, you know. Okay, but I yeah. kind of quickly realized I wasn't going to be the next Jimmy Page or something. <laughs> and and there was another really talented person named Andy Mitchell that um, 
wrote uh, tremendous songs, had a Lawrence audio electric piano like the kind you see on uh, Iggy, uh, the Iggy Bowie tours when, you know, Bowie's producing Iggy Pop. Yeah. And, and Jimmy recorded him. So anyways, we formed this band called Phoenix that played a lot of the community centers and stuff, playing kind of a hybrid of Black Sabbath meets Grand Funk Railroad and other progressive oh, stuff. Oh, wow. You know, King Crimson. Oh, uh, man. I wasn't calling Grand Funk a progressive band. There were right. just certain <laughs> certain things we tagged into, like the, uh, the beginning of that uh, wailing thing, uh, guitar riff on the beginning of that song, Paranoid by Grand Funk. Okay. It sounded like an air raid song. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> we had a song called Minus Minus the Universe that was very kind of sinister. And <laughs> Jimmy copped that lick from Paranoid by Grand Funk. It was like hilarious. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, I don't know, in 1971, I saw, or maybe it was, uh, I was at some point in 70, 71, I guess, I... I saw an ad in um, the Washington Star, which was kind of like the preeminent music news, the, the newspaper in D.C. that was delivered in the evening, but it had a lot of classified ads and especially ads for like guitars, amps and people to be in bands. And I answered this ad and, and it happened to be by this. Um, it was uh, advertising for a bass player. And it just ended up to be this band I'd seen like two weeks before called the Sonny Boy Reed Organization. Oh, wow. And and so I went down in the basement and I didn't know what to expect, really. I, I don't know if we had spoken that much on the phone besides how to get there. Right. And uh, I was 17. Everyone else in the band was like 20, 21. They were all four years older than me. Okay. So anyways... It was the guys from the Sunny Boy Reed organization. <laughs> and, you know, I, I auditioned. I, I, I was kind of coming from bass-wise, like, um, I know I was playing with the Rolling Stones or the Jet Beck group, let's say, and, and I was playing bass like Felix Papillardi from Mountain, kind oh, of. Oh, uh, okay. So, so, you know, they were nice enough to give me another audition, and... I was, you know, I was already listening into the Stones and stuff like that, Baby's yeah. Banquet, uh, all that. But I just kind of adapted, and we ended up being this band, which I don't know maybe you've seen some pictures of uh, of us on my uh, IG page, nicely music. Yes. Um. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, anyways, that led to quite a long time but as, as far as being a kid you know i mean i just listen to the radio all the time it's it's probably it's one of my biggest influences 60s radio just okay. the way it was i mean because is when i got older and i kind of got into uh, the british charts and everything i feel like 60s radio is a lot like their radio was Formatted before in, in the United States became a big deal of formats, you know, like okay. here's going to be our classic rock radio station and our R&B station, urban, you know, so on yeah. and so forth. It was it was everything. It was like Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra. And it was a 19th Nervous Breakdown or even weirder, you know, like I had too much dreamed 
too, too much to dream tonight by the electric prunes or right, right. or something. It was all over the place, you know, the the seeds or, you know, even the 13th floor elevators there for a oh, minute yeah. and Dean and Dean Martin. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, you had, you know, Royals and uh, Supremes, everything, you know, it was just and then the doors started creeping and all this, you know, yeah. psychedelic stuff that managed to have hits and it's pretty informative, you know. So you had a and, wide range of influences then. Yeah. And that's just really continued where I worked in this kind of iconic DC area record store called Yesterday and Today with right. Skip Groff. And, you know, people from all over, really the, the world would come and shop there, Man. especially for singles. And I got, you know, already was pretty tuned and I read all the British music newspapers and stuff. And I read Rolling Stone and I don't know, you know, I, I just got exposed to a tremendous amount of stuff. So how did you start getting into the production side of things? Well, I always remember Jimmy and recording us. And in the Raz, Jimmy actually recorded our demos in Michael, the lead singer, Michael Reedy's house. And uh, so I had a big interest in, you know, like, you know, he had a four track tape machine. He could do eight or or even more tracks through, uh, you know, the sound on sound functions okay. uh, on the recorder. And of course, you know, you lose quality every time you do that. But, um, you know, we could overdub. And then um, in the Raz, we did a lot of recording. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I mean, we started recording professionally, you know, like 16 track, two inch, 24 track, two inch studios with, you know, at least an MCI console or something like that. Yeah. One place out of Nave. And, um, and then um, I just kind of took the, I, I started, you know, there was a lot of time, downtime to kill in some of these sessions. And, uh, sure, yeah. and I would read recording engineer and producer magazine and they would diagram studio setups every month or you know, however many times they come out a year. Right. And, um, you know, I just was because the drum sounds were really depressing a lot of times, <laughs> and and I, I had already you know kind of you know said, well, let's put the harmonizer on the snare drum on uh, this song called "Siridu" by the Raz, and um, you know during the um, middle eights or something like that, and okay. uh, the bridges rather, and and then. I, w I would read in these diagrams about how they were miking the drums and, um, you know, they'd show the mic diagram from some girls or, uh, you know, some other session. Oh, and, cool. you know, this one particular producer, I remember Chris Kimsey, I think, who worked a lot with the Stones. Uh, you know, he was like using ambient mics and I saw the the measurements for, you know, like nine feet up and nine feet away. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And I, you know, walk in the studio, how about we put some ambient mics back here? And, you know, it might not have been nine feet up right. and nine feet away, you know, but it was just an idea. Yeah. And, and so the drums all of a sudden would sound better. And after the Raz broke up, I was in a band called Nightman where I came a little more 
front wise in the production side of it okay and that was definitely where i worked a lot on drums because i had been working with a gentleman named mark greenhouse at track studios in in um silver spring right outside of washington dc yeah and 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 mark was kind of like a mentor you know he he had assisted on some uh, Linda Ronstadt sessions oh, that, wow. uh, uh, from Heart Like a Wheel when I think she oh, was yeah. in town with like uh, doing some dates and, and you know, um, they kind of gravitated towards that kind of thing. Okay. And, and so, you know, I kind of learned how to do vocals, record vocals. I, I, now, I have to put one thing out here right away. Okay. I'm not an engineer. Right. Okay. I, I don't like engineering. I I saw Mark get tied up at you know twelve o'clock at night with like hmm, one of the patches on the compressor isn't working, oh. and then you know fighting with it for an hour or something. So I was like, nah, not yeah. for me. I can't do that. I you know that part of my brain isn't really that great. But yeah, well, you got to know your strengths. I, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, I've been playing in bands for so long and recording for so long. And, and then, you know, I played with Tommy from, you know, 19, you know, after the Ravs broke up in 79. And then I was in this short-lived project with some, a uh, couple of people from the Raz and a, a, a principal songwriter and singer named Mike Colburn. And uh, we recorded a lot. And, um, and with Tommy, you know, we had worked with, T-Bone Burnett and Don Dixon, oh, besides wow. just producing ourselves. But we we did an album with T-Bone Burnett and Don Dixon that was never released. Oh, uh, man. We, we, Places That Are Gone was called, well, at track recorders after, you know, the Raz offshoots got, you know, done with. Tommy, who had gone to New York and played with, um, Suzanne Fellini, who had that hit, uh, Making Love on the Phone. Okay. He was in her touring band. Oh, okay. And and then he stuck around and was in a band with Kenny Aronson, who is a bass mm. player. I'd already yeah. opened up for him uh, the band he was in called Dust that also had Marky Ramone in it, and the lead guy was Richie Wise. Oh, wow. And Tommy had been at that gig. He was like 13 or something. I was 17, <laughs> right? And I got, I, I had met Kenny a couple times, various places, I guess. We all had. He had played, um, God, I want to say he was playing in the Johansson band, but no, he wasn't. I know I saw him like play with Derringer oh, and all this. So, anyways, man. Tommy was playing with all these people, and and this band he was in called Pieces was being managed by the person that managed Blondie for quite a while. Uh, oh, uh, Peter Leeds. Oh, okay. I think Shep Gordon managed them later, the Alice Cooper manager or something. I'm not sure. But Peter yeah, Leeds is so. managing them. And, and anyways, uh, he came back to Washington. And, you know, we had kind of kept in touch. And and I like Tommy a lot. You know, he's a very talented guy. And then, you know, he's I'm going to try my own group. I got some songs. Will you produce my demos? Yeah. And I was sure. And that just kind of started off that whole thing. And we did... A, a more or less regionally released album called Strange Alliance. Concrete sidewalks never took 
And then we went into the and, and and the thing we did with Tommy is that we immediately went on the road. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. We started playing New York, Philadelphia, all that stuff. It was like, don't get caught up in Washington. So, I mean, okay. we, we, we demoed tons of stuff uh, with Tommy and I co-producing at this studio called Hit and Run. Okay. Uh, and, and then, um, I don't know, someone started shopping it. It was out there. I think maybe it was uh, Seth Hurwitz who was managing us by then. And um, uh, uh, some kind of—it sounds kind of crass—a marketing firm, but you know, everyone was looking for new talent, and yeah, yeah. you know, records. Records were starting to come out a lot, and they heard a couple of songs we had demoed that that became the places that are gone EP. We, you know, there were six pulled from all these hit and run sessions we had done. Okay, and so a small record label that was a owned and and worked by a record bar which is kind of was kind of like the waxy maxis of north carolina i think formed a label called dolphin and they were looking for bands and this woman pat day had had heard our tape from side one and and she heard it and immediately took it to her her people and they wanted to work with us so oh, awesome. we did the places that are gone ep and it it got four stars in rolling stone wow it got a lot of acclaim everywhere and um we you know we had kind of decided to take a very zen approach to looking for a record label with which raz it was just always the thing yeah and and so um uh, that worked out really great and we were going to do a full album and we did that you know they wanted a name producer and Don Dixon had produced some stuff already for the label and I think he was maybe I had already worked with Guadalcanal Diary I'm not sure oh okay yeah yeah I think so I want to say he did by that time I know he was working with Marty Jones he had released some solo stuff and um, of course, they'd been in some seminal North Carolina bands or whatever that were on Dolphin. I think he was producing stuff for them. Yeah, you know, I was listening a lot to T Bone Burnett. This this album called Proof Through the Night that a guy named Jeff Irick produced. Who did the later on went and did the Plimsolls uh, for Geffen, and you know he did produce Million Miles Away and all that. Okay, and by the Plimsolls, and then. He also had produced an album by the Gun Club called uh, Las Vegas Story that I was super attracted to. Yeah, yeah. Because it was the best Gun Club it ever sounded, but had all that kind of crazy energy, you know, with Kid Congo and all that. Yeah. You know? And and I was like, man, we got to get this guy, Jeff Eric. And But at first, they, uh, Dolphin was really like, let's get Marshall Crenshaw. 
Oh, which wow. I kind of, I didn't, you know, for me, I didn't love the idea. Yeah. Crenshaw was kind of regionally big in our area, and I'm, I'm sure he meant a lot in a lot of places, but. So T-Bone came up, and we went in the studio with him, and, and of course, we uh, later went in the studio with Jeff Emmerich, who had engineered the Beatles after we got signed to Geffen. He, uh, Tommy got signed to Geffen. Uh, and Tommy and I produced a lot of stuff ourselves in, you know, together on the Tommy King group. And then I had produced regional things when the Raz was kind of a big deal. I had produced this band called the Sleepy Boys. Uh, I did a a really important single with them called uh, Gotta Tell Me Why that I kind of ended up producing by, um, how would you term it? I went there with Skip Groff to the session, okay. who was, you know, really supposed to be producing it. And I, you know, somebody asked me, you know, you want to work on sounds? And I was like, sure. And then, you know, I said, okay, Skip. And he's like, no, keep on going. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we ended up, I just kind of ended up doing the session and, and Skip, you know, exactly produced. I kept on turning around. What do you think? Great. Yeah. <laughs> WHFS, you know, which was the main station in Washington, D.C. area. And then the Slickies asked me to do an album. I think they ended up calling it uh, Here to Stay, which was the next one. It had the, I know it had the single The Brain That Refused to Die. Yeah. um, I was quite an undertaking because we did it at Track, and Track wasn't really a very cheap studio. Ah, okay. And so, you know, I, I was getting stuff on the radio, and then Tommy's Strange Alliance EP, it had eight songs. I mean, you know, it was basically an album. Right. Uh, it, like, man, it, it, I, they started playing the title cut, Strange Alliance, and then uh, I think The Heart is a Lonely Place to Hide was on a record of skips called Connected, which was kind of all the connections between the groups and uh, that recorded for his label. Okay. Or had records that were co-put out by his label, and I I ended up it was almost a vanity project between Skip producing stuff and me producing stuff, <laughs> and you know a lot of that got played on the radio and places definitely got played and you know the Geffen record got played and and also when I was playing with Tommy we worked with Bob Clear Mountain on a song for a movie that we were in called Run Now. Okay. Uh, the, the movie's called Out of Bounds. It has Anthony Michael Hall in it. Um, Jennifer Wright from uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. And then some guy playing the bad guy you've seen in a zillion movies. <laughs> and uh, it was directed by the guy who did all of Clint Eastwood's or most of Clint Eastwood's post- Dirty Harry movies. 
and oh. like tightrope and stuff like that. And, yeah. and this was going to be Anthony Michael Hall's first like serious role. Okay. And oh so we went out to Los Angeles and we're in the movie. Oh, cool. And so was Susie and the Banshees doing Cities and Dust. Oh, wow. And and then John Kladner, who was an R.A.N.R. person, Tom Zutat was, who had signed Guns N' Roses at Geffen. Yeah, and yeah. He signed Dokken and Electra. He signed Public Image at Electra, too. Was very interested. And he got Tommy, you know, a song on there. And we had this song laying around called Run Now that we had done by ourselves. Yeah. We had had it produced by T-Bone and Don, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And then yeah. we walked in the studio with Clear Mountain. Here's a great story. <laughs> I'm working yesterday and today, right? Right. Tommy and I are both, like, extreme Clear Mountain fans. Okay. We loved the Brian Adams Reckless album. Oh, I God. always thought... I always That's thought, like my sister's like, favorite run, album I ever. always thought um, Run... Run With You? Was that the big single you. off that? Run To Run You. Run To You. Yeah. I always thought the beginning sounded just like this Echo Bunny, Echo and the Bunnymen song. Yes. I think, I think it was Rescue. I, th I, know, you, I know which one you're you talking know, about. Yeah. Da -da 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 and that was, his was like in a minor thing. I always thought it, was, so, it reminded you know, me of that and, song and, by and, the Hollies. And he's clear about it, done a lot of great stuff. So anyways, I was at the, the record store and I maybe I, I had heard something that I might get a call okay. from him because I was kind of like the technical guy of the band or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I was, you know, yesterday and today are split and we're split into two stores. One was the main store where we had albums, CDs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The other side was the single side, which is exclusively 45s. Oh, wow. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth, probably. Jeez. You know, collector stuff all over the place. Right. I'm in the single side, and all of a sudden, somebody calls me on the phone. I guess there were two phones in there. I'm not sure. Maybe it had a hold. It had called waiting. And so someone said, Ted, Bob Clearmount's on the phone. <laughs> and I said, Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I pick up the phone. I hear his very nice voice. Hi, Ted. This is Bob Clearmountain. And I said, yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I could hear him kind of do, um, no, it's really Bob Clearmountain. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Please excuse me. I'm we're kind of excited about coming in the studio with you. <laughs> so he explained, you know, he's like, yeah, I just want to touch bases with you before you come up here and, you know, lay out a couple, just, you know, see how you are and get yeah. a couple ideas from you about a band. And, you know, he said, one thing we're going to do is work with a click track because it's not about, you know, keeping the drummer nailed down. It just makes it easier to edit between takes Etc. Okay. And I said, sure. And 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 we had a lot of problems recording songs from the film with Jeff because Jeff was very, very um he was a very nice guy. But there were some things going on that I think he 
didn't understand that that really mm-hmm. confounded him like why our A&R guy was there the whole time oh. <laughs> we were making a record and he was you know I mean I'm sorry you know Tom I'm sure he meant well but he was a pain in the ass yeah. he was very problematic all the way across the line and Jeff was uh, I think he was like he didn't really know what to he wasn't a very conversational person Okay. We did pre-production with him. He never said, how about if Doug tries quarter notes on a kick drum, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, you break down your bass part a little bit or something. And, and you know, so we just went in there and played. And then they tuned Doug's drums enormously weird. Oh. And and we had the engineer from who had worked a lot on worked with Asic Camry, worked with Mark Knopfler, oh, wow. you know, all this stuff, you know. So I was like, why aren't they giving Doug so much of a problem over the drums, you know, the sound of them? Yeah. Because they tuned his drum heads really low, like, so they were not really tight. And, and Doug was having a lot of trouble playing his drums tuned that low. Oh, bad. You know, I mean, like, the snare drum, he could almost, like, put his hand through the snare oh, or something. Oh, but, you know, people were really doing a lot of sampling then, junk, and certain sounds. And, and anyways, I didn't really run into the same kind of things. He wasn't really helpful in the vocals. And, and you know, all stuff that I think everybody thought, hey, this is the guy that sat next to George Martin for years. Right. I mean, you know. It wasn't, I, it, none of us really wanted Jeff Emmerich to produce our album. It was their idea. Yeah. And, you know, of course, Billy and all of us were Beatles fans at one point or another. You know, I mean, you're always a Beatles fan, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you like them, but Billy was very connected to him. But he had also produced Imperial Bedroom by Elvis Costello. He had done a, wow. a soundtrack with Big Country. Oh, by awesome. um, uh, you know, called Restless Natives and a Scottish movie, and I thought, well, you know, if we're in a big country, he's not going to sh- fuck up the drums. Yeah, <laughs> which you know, bad call. Yeah. and um, and and Aaron Monserrat. I'm not trying to dog it, but it wasn't a very interesting room hmm. to record in. You know, I mean, like there was this beautiful area where we ate dinner, like a veranda, and then this living room. Uh, like the lounge area and Live Aid was going on during the first part of when we were recording there. Oh, wow. At Air, at Air Montserrat. And all these people kept on drawing by. Paul Young was there on the way back from Live Aid. You know, Live Aid was going on. So, you know, he came there. Midyear was there the night we got there from Ultravox. Oh, man. You know, I mean, you know, it was just kind of a weird scene. But I, I saw this area and I was... You know, it certainly went off in my head a couple of times. Like, why aren't we recording drums in this room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, later on, if I was in a band, or certainly if I'd ever done a record there, which I wouldn't have recommended for other reasons, I, I would have said, we're going to record the drums right here. Right here. Because yeah. it would sound amazing. But when we worked with Bob, Clear Mountain, recording to a click was wonderful. Okay. Uh, he listened. We played the song through. He probably already listened to a demo, but he wanted to hear us play. Yeah. And and the and just after the thing, he said, "Okay, in the intro here, break down the um the kick drum to this. Play the play the kick drum these kind of notes. And then on the bridge, let's cut down to halftime. And 
you know, where the whole song was eighth note, all, all of a sudden a like quarter note, I guess. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of trying to talk in some kind of understandable <laughs> thing, you know. All I know is he, he broke it all down. Yeah. And, and the song just kind of became a, that's what we needed. Okay. And between that and this this thing, probably the most cool thing that the T-Bone Burnett, Don Dixon crew did on the songs we were recording for the album on Dolphin, which also would have been called Songs from the Film. I found out later that was Tommy's working title for his first album. Uh-huh. Um, they took a drum fill that Doug did and put that on as an intro and and then took the chorus and flew in like a snare drum just doing bah, da, 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 boom, boom, you know on the kick okay. and and made the intro to it it's called a song called back again try and i was like wow man that was that that really it sounded like the hollies it sounded like an intro for a holly song oh, like cool. carrie ann or yeah or something like that you know and then with bob just in the and the couple of things he did with Clear Mountain d- did with us that that I was like wow he really changed the song he made it great and so then when I started uh, you know I just started hearing things like that and you know sometimes you don't need to do stuff like that often right. you don't when you produce a band. But, you know, maybe 50% of the time, 30% of the time, uh, you know, like certainly when I worked with Fugazi, I probably didn't suggest a lot of kick drum stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I know if someone was doing the same thing in every song, I'm, I probably would have said, mm, you know, you're doing that. And like this song, this song is a song. Let's please, let's think of something else here. Right, right. But, you know, in other bands I worked with, it would definitely be the, the full-on, like, let's work on these. You kind of had a mix uh, in your style of producing, of, of uh, suggesting, depending, I guess depending on the band. I know some producers, like, you know, Steve Albini is notorious for just letting a band play, and, oh, that's your sound, that's what you guys sound like, and that's it. But there's mm. others that are more, uh, I, I guess... You could say helpful, providing suggestions to the band and maybe some guidance. I mean, uh, well, it's strange. You, you know the story behind and on the Killtaker and me and Fugazi, right? And Steve. Uh, I'm not sure. Feel free well, to, to to tell me about it. Well, <laughs> I did. I did the first Fugazi EP. Yes, the eponymous, I guess you call it. Yes, and then that was grafted onto Thirteen Songs, which was right. the red EP. Let's yeah. call it, and and then uh, Margin Walker that they did with John Loader. from that and they were kind of like mm, didn't dig the the experience we had with loader you know um it wasn't john it was just the 
the way they had to do it because John rented a really great studio called the Greenhouse, I think it was called. Okay. Um, where like a lot of, you know, like the Wonder stuff recorded there a lot. Oh, um, yeah. Julian Cope, I think, worked. No, he worked at Livingston. Uh, it was a very well-known studio anyways. Right. Pretty sure it was called the Greenhouse. And and so Brennan, and it was at the end of this like 80-date European tour where they were staying in squats and oh. Brennan had been sick. So John was like, okay, well, we're going to go in studio. We're going to go into this studio and record the drums. And then we're going to go into my studio, which I, I think had an overdub booth and a control room. Okay. And do the rest of it. And Fugazi is very much a live, they want to do it live to tape. Yes. And then some overdubs. Yes. So that's that's the way we had done the Red EP, and that's the way we always did it, because they're very, very, very well-rehearsed band. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, not to the point of being like uh you know stiff Stale. or anything just yeah. you know they they want to know what they want to go in there and do what they do and and then whatever else happens is great yeah but but um after repeater i kind of bowed out i was like mm, you know there were a couple of things i i i just decided i should kind of take it off for various things right and and they did and we had been talking about doing what became Steady Died and Nothing. And okay. and then they did and then they did Steady Died and Nothing producing it themselves and it didn't go very well. Right. And so then and, and we were all still friends, you know, I talked to Guy and Brendan, uh, the drummer all the time and Yeah. Guy's uh, one of the principal songwriters and singers and guitarists and he called me on and said, Oh, well, we're gonna record uh, some songs. Uh, oh, I got the recording LP. He said, we're going to Chicago to record with Steve Albini. And I was like, wow, that's great. This is right after Go did come out by Jesus Lizard. Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely a very big thing going on there. Yeah. And I was like, well, have a great time. And I was thinking, man, if this, if this happens really cool, it's going to be great. Now, Besides maybe some philosophical differences I have with Steve, I, I think he, he's done some really great stuff. And oh, yeah. even some stuff I don't particularly like the sound of, but I do like the artists, like, say, Rid of Me by P.J. Harvey. Okay, yeah. You know, I, I, th I thought Rid of Me was kind of, like, hard to hear the songs sometimes, but she really, the songs and her voice and everything really just made the best of the cacophony. I, I, I think that Steve kind of records everything the same way. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a really clam boom, but there's albums he did that didn't sound like that, like Surfer Rosa and uh, The Breeders' first album when Tanya Donnelly was in there, you know, yeah. later went on to Belly and yeah. I guess had been in probably Muses at the time or maybe had just left. Anyways, um, uh, they went in the studio. This is in the book, 33 and a third book, uh, The Making of In on the Kill Taker. Okay. And they'd gone in the studio with Steve. And, you know, we kind of set him up. They, they really had a great hang, you know, making food and and yeah. rapping and everything and, and recording. And I don't think the songs maybe were as fully developed 
yeah, they, they only went in there in the intention of maybe recording three songs. But they were having such a good time, they just sort of laying down all this stuff. Oh, wow. And we're very excited. And, you know, it's really similar to uh, the way Tommy and I, and all of us, I guess, felt about songs from the film with Jeff Emmerich, because he did a rough mix one day. And, man, I'm telling you, the rough mixes of like four of those songs were amazing. Oh, really? It was like the Beatles. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know that really cool kind of fuzzy, warm Beatles sound meets us. You know, I mean, it was okay. just a tremendous sound. You know, yeah. they had all those Fairchild limiters and stuff. You know, those little tube limiters they were using. And these rough mixers were great. And then he sat down to mix the album, and it was just kind of... Now I like it, but I, it, when we came home, we were very kind of like, eh. <laughs> And we, we got William Whitman, who had worked with the Hooters and everything, to, to remix. And that's where I met John Agnello, by the way, who's been a friend since that session. Oh, cool. Uh, he was engineering for, the, uh, for William Whitman, who had done the Hooters and... They had just done the outfield, I think, and that was beginning to come out. And oh, wow. Bill was doing mixes for like Loverboy, everything that Clear Mountain was a mixing. Bill was, okay. and John was assisting him. Okay. So I'm not John there, but anyways, back to the other thing. You know, they had recorded, and they were very excited by you know this the kind of you know it was new. But yeah. when they started listening to it on the way home from the session and Steve started listening to it at home, I think everybody thought, oh, God, this is a mess. Oh, geez. And, and they let me, you know, they called me up and said, well, why don't you listen to some stuff? And I listened to it. And it was kind of like that, you know, when you, when you record stuff with a lot of ambient mics in rooms and you use too much room sound, you can never really get a balance because you want to hear the guitars more, the drums and the and the vocals get buried, and then you have to turn up the vocals. And if you want to record everything with with ambience, natural ambience, it's very hard to control it if you if you don't have everything on separate mics or okay. And and I'm sure Steve does because he he did that stuff with Nirvana and they did the two singles and you know there's yeah. still some elements like Steve uses a really cool mic or he did called the Calrex Soundfield okay. microphone that has four capsules in it and through some kind of phasing stuff in this control box you can control the acoustics in the room that you record it in. Oh, wow. You have four separate mic leads oh going into God. the console. Wow. And he, uh, the, the engineer I worked a lot with at one point, Eli Gianni, who later went on to Girls Against Boys, and we made three of their albums together. We did an album in France by this band called Noir Désir, and we used that Calrex Soundfield mic, but we used it for everything. I mean, we, we used it on the drums, and in a few places you would say, I've heard that sound.
but the vocals we would record it and you could really work like some cool things with it but we were doing pretty at points you know uh, that band's music was kind of both loud and soft you know not you know i mean like they had some soft songs like where the the drums were brushes and junk. Right. And and so we had that thing. But anyways, a lot of ambience and and they didn't like the way it sounded, Fugazi. And at first, you know, I mean, I listened to tapes. There were some of the recordings I, I liked quite a bit, but they definitely need the vocals redone and, okay. and some stuff. And some songs just need to be done again, in my, my viewpoint of right, listening right. to it very fast. Yeah. But... Steve doesn't like to be remixed and re, you know additional production. <laughs> yeah, and the band definitely thought they could do a lot better, which I wouldn't disagree with particularly. But okay. uh, you know they definitely need to do the vocals. And anyways, um, I ended up redoing that. Help me get back to the place I was at. There, uh, <laughs> 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 it tied into recording techniques. I, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. I just, I just learned a lot, man. You know, I, I watched people do this, you know, and yeah. and I watched uh, the the Clear Mountain session really informed me. I wasn't trying to make records like Bob. There were there were other engineers um, and producers like Steve Lillywhite. I dug oh, yeah. Tommy and I dug, you know, and he kind of revolutionized that room sound with the, the Peter Gabriel sound, uh, Peter Gabriel song, uh, Games Without Frontiers. Yes. And, and uh, XCC, the Black Sea album, oh, particularly. Okay. Okay, I yeah. mean, he did two, two of those things, but that song, Respectable Street, I mean, that's a totally insane sound. And I mastered some records at the studio he recorded that at called oh. Townhouse in London, and I saw the stone room, which is where they, they recorded those drums and like Phil Collins did in the air tonight and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Man, that, that room is like a, big as a bedroom. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, it's dinky. It's dinky. <laughs> wow. I walked in there and Jeff Beck had been recording some guitars there. And there was a room mic pointing straight up at the ceiling and then another mic going in the um you know just like going sideways in the room and then i think they had a mic on the amp oh my and that was it you know and i was just like man i don't know how they're, they're doing this in here but it's crazy <laughs> and, and you know so you know there were there were certainly a lot of people that that influenced what i was thinking of but not being an engineer you know i could only you know i mean there were things that i could I mean, I knew about aspects of acoustics and all that stuff. I just didn't want to mess around with wires and being in front of amps and stuff. I, I, you know, having been a bass player, I think a lot of producers are bass players or pianists and stuff like that. And I, I think being a bass player kind of helps you understand the relationship between the drum aspect and everything else. You know, it's kind of the tying point. Okay. And okay. A lot of bass players play uh, end up as record producers. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You know what? I didn't think about that. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just read a. I'm, not that I read a lot of recording magazines anymore, but uh, I I do get tape up, and I read a great interview with Phil Thornley who did the Thompson Twins with Alex Sagan. And oh wow! He he worked on some Cure stuff. He played bass in the Cures. 
uh, on the Cure's live album and maybe some of the top. And I, I think he produced the top. Okay. And, and I actually got to record in the studio where he, where he came out of called uh, Rack, R-A-K Studios. And Lily White worked in there and uh, Mickey Most owned it who produced all of Everything. those records. Yeah, you know, from the Animals to Susie Quattro to... Yardbirds. Yardbirds, you know, uh, man, everyone. And, yeah. and he was a really nice guy to boot. I used to have coffee with him in the morning on this one project I was working on. Oh, wow. And he, he was so nice, man. Oh. And I needed an acoustic guitar. I needed acoustic guitar for this song we were doing. Uh, this British band that was signed to Island called uh, Carrie, uh, the bass player from EMF, uh, You're Unbelievable, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, was in it. <laughs> I remember and that. And so um, I asked Mickey, I said, do you know, what are, you know who does rentals here? You know, we need an acoustic. He said, hold on a minute, mate. He goes in the back room, comes out with this beautiful Gibson J200 Ooh. and says, here you go, use this. Uh, Donovan played Donovan played Mellow Yellow on it. Oh Maybe you'll have a hit. Gosh. I was like, wow. Whoa. <laughs> it was just so, you know, so freaked out, man. man. That'd be amazing just to <laughs> touch that guitar. Yeah, you know, and, and later on, we uh, I was in another studio uh, called Hook and Manor. It's got a really long, it's called Outside Studios, and Langer and Wynn Stanley owned it. Okay. Uh, they had a studio in London called Westside, uh, where they recorded, um, what is it called? They did, a, they did a great Elvis Gusto album with the Madness Horns and stuff. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Oh, uh, not real good with Elvis Costello stuff. Yeah, anyways, um, Lyon Wynn Stanley bought David Gilmore's studio in oh. this town near Oxfordshire called Hook and Manor. It was a, a, a mansion. And, oh, wow. and he had built a studio there. So they came in and built, I don't know if they added a control room, but it had this huge SSL with like 12 channels of focus, right? And oh, it's, it was a great thing. That's where I recorded, uh, Eli and I did Noir And anyways, the Reading Festival that Nirvana played, 92 was during yeah during that album session oh wow and everyone was going to go to the Reading Festival and and, and Langer Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley came in both of them had done albums that I loved Alan Winstanley especially you know I mean he'd done Lady Lovett she had done um, I mean, just, I can't remember. He just, the original Mirrors, which was an amazing record that nobody knows about, but I was a big fan of it. I'm not familiar with that one either. Um, but Alan Winstanley, if you Wikipedia him or, you know, whatever, you'll you'll see his discography. It's insane. Okay. I'm, I, Clive Langer is really familiar. too. Clive Langer, well, basically produced, they both produced everything by Madness. Okay. They did. At least Clive did. I don't know if Alan was working with him then. Come on, the Dexy's album with uh, Come On Eileen. Oh, Dexy Midnight Runners, yeah. Right. And so, you know, I sat around for a good part, uh, an afternoon, and then when they came back from the, uh, the Reading Festival, which got rained, that's why I didn't go. Oh, really? Uh, really? You know, um, 
I, I said, no, sorry, man. I've seen enough films and read enough stories in New Musical Express to know that Reading Festival is a fucking mudslide. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going to get pneumonia while I'm making this record. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, so anyways, they come back. And meanwhile, I've been staying in this place, man. And it was so freaking scary really this huge mansion this this walkway this staircase up to the to where we were staying at in this you know in a mansion we're like it was like this do you remember this show called thriller that boris karloff did no he was the host for no it was kind of like Night Gallery when Rod Serling did that after Twilight Zone. Okay, okay. But anyways, there's this one episode about this mirror, and all I could think of walking up in those stairs was that show. It looked just <laughs> like that episode. <laughs> and, man, I'm telling you, I've always been a scaredy cat. You know, <laughs> I, I went to the movies when I was five or six with my brothers and they took me to see this movie called the um, Village of the Damned. Oh, right? yeah. Where these kids, these British kids, like, you know, were in this school. I don't know what happened to them, but their eyes would light up and yes. people would just like blow their heads off and shit. Yeah. I was so scared. <laughs> I would look at, I turned my head around and watch the movie in the mirror. Oh, so brothers were like, <laughs> I'm going to lose your ass when we're going home because <laughs> you pissed us off so bad. <laughs> Anyways, I was staying. I was staying in this recording studio. There was a mansion of David Gilmore's, and I was scared out of my mind. Like I was six years old. <laughs> oh, man. I was. Oh, wait till they come home. <laughs> Let me turn on the television and see if anything's going. Going on. Oh, I man. wouldn't come out of this lounge. And then they got home, and I was like, "Thank God, is that Ray had a heart attack?" <laughs> <laughs> I found out later that like David Gilmore had David Gilmore's wife had this room they called the White Room. This another part of the lounge <laughs> exercise. Oh my God. Really? The, yeah, and it was just so weird. I mean, you know, the pig from the Pink Floyd tours was in this shed behind the. Oh place. my god! <laughs> <laughs> you stay in these places in France, and, and you know, you record in these places in France and in England, and they're ancient. Yeah, and uh, you know, they have so many vibes. You know, I mean, for sure. <laughs> oh gosh, I can but, but anyways, you know, I met I you know I met a lot of people and and you know just observed and pick up great stories from the engineers. You know, like the engineers that were assisting us in England had just worked with Clear Mountain and Mutt Lang. They were mixing the Robin Hood song "Everything I Do." Oh yeah, yeah. They had mixed that song for fifty days oh my god i'm not bullshitting you i, I met what? three How? different engineers who worked on that what 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 can possibly take that much time on one song um mutt lang here stuff that people just don't hear you know and i, I guess uh, I, mean, yeah. I heard all kinds of stories you know i had somebody say you know that he would say, let me let me hear the mix you know put the phone up he said the hi-hats off are like 
0.5 milliseconds. Oh, like, oh, come on. But then, hey, look, I, I worked with a guy in a uh, who was helping me with a very primitive version of Pro Tools on an album I was making that the singer was having a problem on. Later on, I, I kind of figured out he was having allergies. Oh, but, geez. Uh, we were trying to finish the album on deadline. And um, anyways, the guy who was working with us, uh, you know, like digital editing, had worked with Luther Vandross. Ooh. And, and he said that Luther would hire him to tune stuff that nobody else could hear. Really? But Luther could hear it. And... This session for this band, I um, this is the, like the latest album I had come out recently uh, in 2019. We recorded it in 1997 for Virgin, but it came out in 2019 by this band called the New Rising Suns. Oh wow! Okay, I, played, I, I ended up playing bass on it. It was really a great, fun record. Oh cool! We had Paul making it, and it was fun for me because they didn't have a bass player really, and I ended up playing. And, it really helped doing arrangements and everything, but we were doing a song. Uh, we had a song called Bring Me Around. Back strong faces cut short by the turn of the of a soft song in places, very oasis-y maybe, kind of. Oh, cool. And this woman I know, um, an old friend of mine um, named Lisa Art, she was working for a management company and that managed Suzanne Vega and Sean Colvin and stuff. And, mm. yeah. and also, also Fonzie Thornton and um, Diva another singer I can't remember there's a picture up on my website and probably on my IG page of the session they all knew Luther maybe they sang on Luther stuff Clonzi and Diva sang on like the Talking Heads uh, uh, stuff and, oh, and okay. did um, you know when they remain in light and, and yeah, also yeah. the live album they were on the in the touring group okay. and so in walks with them Luther and droves and he's sitting in that right right behind me oh wow and i was i was just like wow man fucking luther yeah <laughs> and he was so nice oh cool. so nice and then at some point he said ted do you mind if i say something to them and to talk back and i said of course not <laughs> and so he says hey you know that's part on that uh bridge and so robert or someone said here come in here so they went in there and talked, and, and he, he suggested this part that that broke down the chorus vocal. Some called Bring Me Around. You can get it on YouTube okay, or, yeah. or, or stream it from Bandcamp. But the album's called Set It Right by the New Rising Suns. Okay. And, and anyways, man, 
it was just phenomenal. And, and Luther was just such a great guy, and he was singing a little bit. Oh, uh, wow. You know, I mean, I got to hear him sing the part to the band and then, you know, to the singers. Yeah, rather, yeah. and, then, and then, you know, they were like, hey, why don't you come in here and sing? And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just here to hang. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, I mean, I, I think he died about a year later. Oh, I don't know yeah. why. I don't know what of, but. He was such a nice guy, and, and 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 like I said, this this digital engineer is just like I work with Luther. He wants me to fix stuff. A dog couldn't hear what's wrong with it, <laughs> but he can. And and I know, you know, I mean, one of the primary things about producing, you know, working with singers and everything is nobody likes the sound of their voice, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm sure, do you like listening back to your podcast? I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I, you know, I've gotten kind of used to it in a way. But, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I hate it. And, I, you know, most singers, I don't know how they do it, man, because I know they're, I, I guess it's just as you do it more and more, you finally realize you're okay, you know, or you can hear you as you are. And even I, as, as a um, producer, I mean, for a long time, I had trouble sometimes listening to albums I'd made because I, I just couldn't hear them. You know, I couldn't hear it. There would be these pockets of time that I could hear hear what it really sounded like, I think, what, what people heard it as. Yeah. But for me, you know, maybe three quarters of the time, 60% of the time, I'm like, oh, God, man. <laughs> Why didn't we do this? Why didn't we... EQ this better or something, oh, you know. Geez. It's really hard. So, you know, anybody who can, like, sit there and objectively sing, you know I mean? I, I feel for him. You know, anybody recording, it's it's hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think, I had, you know, one thing that kind of informed my production was definitely having been a musician. Oh, and, yeah. And watch the process go down. I mean, like, and again, I'm not, I'm not dissing Jeff. But Jeff Emmerich, but yeah. he never ever suggested a part to Tommy. Wow. Tommy would say, What do you think? How was that? Yeah. Jeff would say, I'm doing another one. And like if a singer ever asked me, I would be like, Well, we got it like I you know, I mean I, I never do more than three takes of a vocal before Everybody sits down and listens to it, you know, meaning me and the vocalist probably, yeah. and listen to the takes, two or three, okay. and see if we have something to comp, Okay, you know, to compile. Right, right. That's what you call it, a comp track. You, oh. you take okay. whatever, and, 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 you know, unless the singer walks in there and says it's done, which yeah. never has happened with my sessions. I may have said it to somebody, but I don't think I would ever presume that I could say that to an artist. Right. Um, <laughs> It would just be too ballsy, you know. Uh, oh yeah, and 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 presumptive, but or assumptive. Uh, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I, anyways, you know, I you know, stand there to compile it, and uh, you know, but I mean, Tommy did some of those vocals seven times. Oh wow! And it wasn't because they were bad, but I don't think he felt any better when Jeff wouldn't like just say, "Let's listen." And, yeah. and, you know, let me listen to it for a minute. Take a break. Quickly listen to the vocal. Write down some, you know, just listen. I mean, it's not that hard to listen to two tracks and find something good. Right, right. And if you don't have anything good, 
then is the time to start discussing, you know, it sounds like you're not comfortable yet. What can I do to make you more comfortable? Ah. You know, I mean, Michael Beinhorn, I think, produced, you know, he produced Sound uh, Super Unknown by Soundgarden, right? Yes. And he turned around and said to Chris Cornell, because he'd listened to all these demos, he said, "Um, Chris, this is what I've read. Chris, um, why you don't the, the vocals you're doing right now don't sound anything like the way you sang on the demos. What's up? Hmm. And he said, "Well, I did all the demos like sitting in my room by myself, and I would just hit record and you know kind of go in where I needed to, etc." Yeah, Beinhorn was like, "Okay, setting you up a mic. You're gonna have the tape machine right here." Call me when you're done. You want me to hear something? Wow. And, the vo- you know, I mean, the vocals on Super Unknown are some of the best things I've ever heard in my life. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the vocals to, you know, was it on Black Days? I fell on Black Days. It fell on Black Days, man. Yeah. It's like, and And now all of them, you know. Like yeah, he's suicide. just such a fantastic oh, singer, you know. I mean, he's just like... Amazing, and I, yeah. I I never really cared for Soundgarden alike before Super Unknown. Ah, okay. I mean, it just didn't connect with me. It was a lot of really. Uh, I, I just you know I'm I'm like a stickler like that. I guess it's probably not a very good trait. <laughs> Although I, I I like things that maybe aren't recorded greatly, but I just didn't like the the, the vibe of those albums. And Super Unknown, I really okay. like the vibe of it. Okay, Probably yeah. I, I didn't like Spoonman very much. I didn't I like maybe that liked either. the vocal, but man, well, you know, when Black Hole Sun and Fell on Black Days came out, I was like, this yeah. is like phenomenal shit. Oh yeah, that, I mean, there's there's songs in there that are incredible. Fourth of July, like Suicide, Mailman. They're just yeah, I like Mailman a lot. Yeah. Uh, I kind of thought that was like limo wreck. Buying, I love limo wreck. I thought it was kind of buying into that. Albums should be 17 songs long. I don't really like that. Oh, no. I, 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 don't, I don't know many albums that aren't double albums that have 17 songs on them, <laughs> I think, are good amazing, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I, a lot I, of double I, albums aren't really great albums either. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, maybe, I, you know, Exile on Main Street certainly is, I think. Yeah. I didn't like the White Album tremendously. I yeah, uh, that's, I mean that's not. I I agree with you. I mean, I could pare that down to probably one album for the stuff that I really really like, and even something like Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy. If you took that to one album, I, I, it would I think be it would, amazing, right? Yeah, that's the see. That's the one Pumpkins album I do really really like. Oh really? My, I mean, I, I I like them. Yeah, I, I especially like Gish on. I mean, um. Uh, Siamese Dream on, but Siamese Dream was my favorite. Uh, but I didn't love Siamese Dream. Oh, really? I, I really. I, Flood's one of my favorite producers because he, he kind of is all over the place. You know, he does yeah. Nick Cave, then he does Depeche Mode, then he does U2. Yeah. And then he uh, jumps into the Smashing Pumpkins and I think made them sound very, very warm and human instead of so kind of like either aggressive or. 
I, I don't know, you know, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. He brought out the kind of warmth and, and mellowness, I think, in them, you know. He's, yeah. He's a very cool guy. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. It, it, it's, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it, maybe melancholy kind of holds together. I, I don't know, you know. I, I, you know, I, I, I haven't. There were songs I definitely loved off of it. Yeah. And it, but then there's also songs that I'm not thrilled about. I don't, you know, I haven't heard it front to back in ages. You, you, you know, as a producer, I think you kind of have to find methods and, uh, you know, just ways of working around it. Sometimes you get presented with some doozies that you just are like, wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, like... You find out someone in a band has a really bad drug problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, yikes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. What do you do? Um, <sighs> the one time it presented itself to me. <sighs> I was like, because I had suspected it. Yeah, we were in pre-production, and the person kept on not showing up. Ah, yeah. And and I was, or he showed up really late. And finally, we were waiting around for him one day in the studio, uh, a rehearsal studio. And I said, "Look, guys, level with me, because we got. I was over. I was over in London to do a single." And it was kind of my audition for the album. Okay. And I was like, look, if so-and-so's having a problem, you got to address it. Yeah. And I don't care what you do. All I know is that we're going to walk in the studio, and if he's not there or you can't play, I'm playing. Ah. That's just what I got to do. I can't not, like, I can't tell the record company, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, not yet. We're doing this single. Yeah. So he came in. He was great. Good to go. We recorded this, the two tracks. Boom. You know, now later on, he, I got asked back to do the album. And they wanted to put us in a residential studio, which happened to end up being Rockfield which is the studio that you see in Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, it's a studio that Queen recorded that album in. Wow. And Dave Edmonds helped build it. Oh, uh, wow. You know, I mean, just a ton of... Everybody had been through that place, you know? Yeah. It came in there right after Oasis had finished. Definitely Maybe, I think. Oh, And then wow. Black, Grape, Black Grape had been in there. Oh, man, all kinds of wild stories about that stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, the wall around Rockfield was supposedly where, uh, I mean, I heard this, who knows, that uh, Neil, uh, Noel Gallagher recorded the poo stick for Wonderwall. Oh, man. I had a really weird, like, I had a really weird vibe about it because Pete DeFridis, the drummer for Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen recorded a couple albums there, okay? Okay. And I go, Peter Friedis, the drummer for Echo and the Bunnymen, rode motorcycles and he was riding his motorcycle down this road that ran in front of Rockfield in Wales and he um, got in an accident and was killed. Oh. So anyways, 
they wanted the band to record at Rockfield. And I was like, you know, man, I've recorded a lot of records residentially over here, yeah. especially. And I just don't think it's a good idea to throw these guys in a residential situation. I think they'll, I think they won't like it. You know, you really have yeah. to be in the, all that stuff. Plus, I think it would be better for the person in question to be around, you know, a supportive vibe. Right. And no one would listen to me. So, yeah. you know, he had become an alcoholic and he was really funny. But, you know, like, I don't know, the first night we were there, the studio almost got burned down. Whoa. Uh, I was asleep. And then another time I went in there and it was just a mess. Oh, you know, it's like one of those things. And, you know, you kind of have to know where you go. Like, when, when I worked, I worked with this band called Trip and Daisy from Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great album we did. You know, of course, the singer was gone. Uh, um, I got a girl. I got a girl. She's my recording at this they were on Island Records and Island you know Chris Blackwell had the studio in Nassau called Compass Point that ACDC recorded back in Black End oh man and I was like okay I'll listen to this and I went there man I just remember being in Montserrat way too heavy yeah you know I was just like no I can't you know I don't want these guys to be in some tropical thing that you're going to like for two weeks and after that you're going to start hating it right I want some some goddamn tacos and <laughs> uh, some margaritas from your favorite place and it's just not going to be happening yeah so they ended up going to Miami to mix with Chris Lord Algae but we tracked the album in Hoboken, New Jersey. And they'd already been to New York a bunch, you know. I, I was like, fine. And also, a really weird thing that freaked me out was Belly had just recorded there with Glenn Johns. And I saw them coming out of the studio when I went down there to look at it. And I don't know, man, I just got a weird vibe. And then that album, that album tanked, that second Belly record. Oh, yeah, yeah. Down there. I just didn't like the studio. And Roxy Music had recorded Avalon there. It had a really neat little space in the studio that I could just imagine that drum sound on on Back in Black coming from. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I, I just didn't feel good about it, you know? Oh, you got to go with your gut. And, and hey, another uh, weird airplane story. Flying back from there, <laughs> we, we took off from Nassau, and it, it was one of those jets that had the two engines in the back. Yes. And one of them blew out. Oh, jeez. And we had to make an emergency landing in Miami. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so I, I've, got a, I've got a question for you. 
Yes, sir. I'm sorry to talk so much about that. No, that's what this whole this, this whole thing's about. This, this, I love just okay. getting stories. You, okay, fantastic. You left music to go into culinary arts. That was in between the Tommy Keen thing and Geffen and producing the first Fugazi record. Was, in fact, I, I, I mean, yeah. I what, what happened was. At some point during, after Tommy had signed with Geffen, it was probably after the record come out, mm-hmm. and we were writing, he was, you know, we were recording stuff for the second album, like demoing it. And I was, I remember being in my apartment in D.C. Uh, I lived right off of uh, Wisconsin, Upper Wisconsin Avenue near Mass Ave. And, okay. And, and I, I was looking out the window, and, and all of a sudden I thought, you know what, man? This ain't gonna fucking happen. No, wow! <laughs> I start thinking about the future, <laughs> and I, you know, I just had this premonition, premonition, whatever you call it. And I yeah. was, I'm just like, you know, and, and and some of my father used to say to me was while I was doing this music thing which he didn't think very much of. He wasn't a bastard about it, but he he would always say, well, you know, why don't you find something to fall back on, Ted? Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a dad. Really couldn't have to. And, you know, hey, man, I knew how to be a record store manager and a clerk, and, you know, I had sold shoes, you know, some woman's store in Capitol Hill. I'd done, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But one thing I really liked doing was eating in restaurants. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and on my days off from yesterday and today, I, I ended up always watching, you know, in, in fact, when I was a little kid, after I'd seen the Beatles, I loved watching Julia Child. I loved watching Graham Kerr on the Galloping Gourmet. Oh, yeah. I just liked all this stuff. Oh, Justin Wilson. Yeah. That was later. But but in, in the Tommy Keene years... I started watching a show called um, on the Discovery Channel called Great Chefs of, you know, I mean, Great Chefs of the West, Great Chefs of the Southwest, okay, Chefs of New Orleans, and I just really got attracted to it. And so when the Keen thing, I don't know, I just started thinking about it. And of course, we went out to eat a lot, you know, being courted by Geffen and et cetera. Right. Yeah. And and anyways, I, I was I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go to Academy of Cuisine up here in Bethesda. Oh wow! And take this nine month short course, see if I even have an aptitude because I was into cooking, but not greatly. I had a girlfriend who was really a good cook, but after I went to cooking, so I realized she wasn't great at seasoning. You know, using salt and pepper. <laughs> really, it's an amazing art. with culinary school teacher. Yeah. And and anyways, after that solo acoustic tour, and and also we had the Tom King group had done this tour, kind of supporting the Run Now EP. They put out an EP that had the song from the movie on it, which had bombed, yeah, and yeah. the movie did, and and stuff. Although I got a really big residual check, like two years ago. Oh really? A year ago, it was thirty years worth of of <laughs> uh, musicians' unions, uh, whatever. Oh wow! Because uh, you had to join the musicians' union, 
I mean, it was like three grand or something, you know. Still, man, that's and, yeah. No, it's nice, right? Yeah. And the guy from the the film, what is it called? The Film Musician Secondary Markets Fund. Oh wow! He told me because after Tommy died, he told me uh, his brother told me, "Hey, look, you got to file for this because I'm sure you make some money." I found out that Tommy had been making money from it. So anyway, yeah, because he like doing these states so. He, he did tell me that Susie and the Banshees backup, you know, their musicians that were in the movie all had checks still waiting at the film musician oh, secondary market. Wow. <laughs> so, so anyways, you know, I, I, I just said, I finished this solo acoustic tour. We, we'd had this miserable gig on the run now tour where we played at this frat house in the middle of, like outside of Charlottesville oh, and and there were about 15 people watching the band and 75 people drinking beer oh, running around <laughs> and I was like uh, um, the trip down the down the stairs is nowhere near as cool as the trip up so right. <laughs> I'm uh, gonna you know I just I got off the solo acoustic tour and I was like um so my amp and pays, and I'm going to get the tuition to go to this uh, cooking school. Wow. And um, so I did. Oh, my God. And right around then was when Fugazi asked me to do the, the first DP. And but anyways, I, I, I didn't miss I did. I hated school. Yeah. I barely got out of school. I, I had an open book test in culinary school. And I didn't want to look at the book. Oh, wow. And I did miserably. Oh. <laughs> and my teacher, you know, there are two French guys, brothers that opened this, this school. So Francois calls me upstairs, you know, he says, Ted, why, why do you do so bad? You know you were interested in food. You always get eye grades on your tests and everything. And also for this, this midterm, I had to make stocks and I had made this beef stock that was killer. Yeah. And, and he tasted it and he said, did you make this stock? And I said, yeah, I was up for like a day and a half <laughs> <laughs> making it. And so then he said to Clive, do, do not use any bullion or anything to flavor your stocks. And I was kind of like, why are you insinuating? I pulled a, pulled a trick or something. Oh. If you are, you know, you know, of course, you know, somebody, you know, I don't think he wanted to say it was outstanding, but it was, yeah. I'm sorry. It was, you know, and he knew it and I knew it. But anyways, he said, I'm, you're taking the test again. So I took the test the way I was supposed to, and I did a 99. Oh, nice. And I came back for the second term, and I was just not scared anymore, you know? I didn't feel intimidated. Oh, that's Being awesome. 30 in a cooking school, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Half housewives, half chefs that decided to sharpen up their their stuff because they just started cooking in a red lobster and ended up at a decent restaurant wanted to know what everybody was talking about but the really weird thing is that i got i graduated and then i i answered this ad for this place called le berger francois which is out in Falls, virginia i know that it's really famous yeah i I used to sell um advertise um yellow pages advertising they were one of my clients Right. Was, so you knew Francois and, yes. and, and Jacques and all those guys? Yes. 
Oh yeah, man. Well, I was in there. Believe me, man. That was like going in the army, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I walked in there the first day, man, and this guy who was training me, Dennis, was like the the very definition of misanthrope. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I walked in, and somebody was taking me through, and they said, "Well, this is Dennis." And I said, hi, Dennis, great to meet you. And he said, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I was just like, wow, man, this is like way before Kitchen Confidential or something was, 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 you know, written. So, you know, there weren't any tales yet of what it was like to be in a kitchen, man. And I was like, it was so freaking hot. Oh, gee. It had to be like 110 degrees. Oh, my God. I mean, it was it was burning up, man. And, and you know, I was working like as a, as an apprentice. I was basically washing and, and picking parsley. Uh, the big gig was making mussels and white wine, Ooh. you know, with shallots and everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then I graduated to working kind of more on the side of the the fish side and oh, I was in charge of bread but anyways this is such an insane setup man and wow but it was really fun that's okay. it, was, it was like you know a, a, a part out of a Hunter Thompson thing I remember like I think it was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where you saw about how rabbits get hooked on running across the road yeah <laughs> and eventually the truck runs them over yeah I, I was like Man, doing service was like a cross between platoon and setting up for a gig. Oh, wow. You know, like you set up for the gig and, and you know, you got all your, what they call mise en place, which means everything you need to do your job. Right. You know, garnitures, etc. And then the, sh- you know, they call it the show starts. Okay. Which in that particular restaurant meant a, a seating of like most nights two hundred and fifty. Jeez. Um yeah. and, and they did really great French food. I mean, you know, yeah. people like Cheney and everybody was coming there. I don't know Dick Cheney's a gourmand, but <laughs> I ate there and I know it was good. Yeah. I I took someone there and I I ate and I was like shit. God, we're really making fantastic food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but really, man, I mean, it was crazy. I, I was there for about three, maybe four months. And I think I started working there in August of that particular year of 88 and, uh, 89. Okay. Uh, and then my, um, there was a fight one night. It was a particularly messed up service. And there was this guy who had been working for Monsieur, you know, for the old man, for Francois. Yeah. For like years. His name was Mr. Young, Youngie. And got in a fight. He started calling the executive chef who was yelling at him, saying, if you miss one more thing, I'm going to, and you like kind of held up his fist or something. Oh my God. <laughs> and Youngie said, Youngie said, oh, you know, go to hell, mama fuck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wait, man, the executive chef ended up like throwing him across the kitchen, and I was like, "This enough, man! Oh yeah, I, I can't get this, can't get this serious." So I quit, and, wow. and I actually did some stuff at inner ear in that interim period. I, I put out an ad saying producer, blah blah blah, and actually got some work. Oh man, it was good. Some cool bands, and 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 then, but I really missed it. Yeah, and I, and I was making great money. Francois paid people like crazy money. Really? Oh, wow! Yeah, I mean, I meant I, I started there at eight fifty. A month later, two months later, I was making fifteen bucks an hour. Oh my! With God. overtime, that would turn into like, you know, ten hours of overtime at Jeez. what something, and then and then he just upped me to twenty three bucks. Oh my God! And and I was just like. And this is 1988, you yeah. know, for a cook, apprentice. Jeez. Uh, but, you know, I, I really cared. You know, when I messed up and I got yelled at, I was like, I made sure I didn't do that again. Yeah. You know, I don't know, man. It's like, if you ever wanted to be, you know, at that time, you know, I, I didn't go to Vietnam or anything. So this is about the closest I ever got to the war. <laughs> Believe me, it was like the war. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, but you know, at the same time, it's just really funny and and very exciting and and cool and different. You know, different, very different. I wanted to ask you a question that kind of goes two ways, really. Um, or maybe it's maybe it's more of two questions, same two different sides of a coin here. Since you've worked in music and food, most chefs have a signature dish. So, what what would be your signature dish? I was really thinking about going to pastry school, but I decided when I was in culinary school to, you know, just kind of try to get versed, uh, you know, get a job coming out of there and yeah. try to get versed. And I figured that that apprenticeship would get me everywhere. And I was a souffle chef, a dessert chef for three months there. I worked there for about a year and a half. Oh, okay. Berge. And then later on, like after I started making records, I lived across, I, I, you know, when I lived in New York and of course was having pretty decent success, I would eat out a lot, you know, take people out to dinner, you know, bands, whatever. Yeah. And I ended up moving from Brooklyn Heights to a, uh, to a, a studio apartment in Manhattan on like lower Park Avenue, South Park Avenue, like the Gramercy Park issue. Oh, wow. Uh, I used to run into Rick Ocasek, like, oh, in the bodega next door, you know, and stuff. Oh, wow. And see Joe Jets guitarist walking around all the time. And anyways, um, I lived right across the street from this restaurant I had gone to, and I started going to Leal with where Anthony Bourdain was a chef. Mm-hmm. He was writing Kitchen Confidential and everything. Yeah. And so time after. And I went in I had just gone to a call for the Green Day record that had Minority Report on it, or Minority on it. Okay. I went out there. I was on a short list of three, and they were all really nice. I didn't get it. And I was like, you know what, man? I'm I'm taking some time off. I just should have never gone to the Green Day thing. Really? Well, I didn't, you know, I... Really, you know, I didn't know how to approach that. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? I didn't know how to. I was like, I like Green Day, but I don't love them. I yeah, love I've never Green been a Day. fan, it's really. Because Wins came out, you know, uh, you know, best time of your life. And I thought, no, I don't like this. I like the direction they're starting to go. Yeah. It's very tip, very, you know, quickly when you're everybody's heroes, you become kind of a caricature of yourself if you aren't careful. I'm not yeah. saying they were. They were all fantastic people. Yeah. But I didn't really... You know, I don't know. Maybe I was just too, like a gog or something. You know, yeah. I, I, I usually I would say. So, what are you planning on? What do you want to do with this new record? Do you have any stuff I can hear? Whatever you know. Yeah. Anything you want to ask me? And anyways, what I'm getting around to is that I just thought that I needed to step away for a little while, and I got I went to Laol and tried to get a gig as a pastry chef, and because I cooked all the time. And, and everything and yeah. that was yeah, you know and anyways they weren't looking for one uh, he's not particularly very pastry centric he okay. wasn't okay but um, I saw an ad for this restaurant that was getting ready to start they were looking for staff okay. and and the, the chef Douglas Rodriguez had been a James Beard award winner and, and ah. was in this restaurant right across from me where I lived, like, look out my side window across 21st Street or 20th Street, and there it was. Oh, and I'd wow. see it turn in out of the back, and I was like, man, I'd love to work there. And so anyways, I went to this open call, and I got hired. So I worked there. I mean, you know, I helped. I was on the opening crew of the restaurant opening and wow. and um you know we got two new york times uh, we got two stars in new york times which is like three stars for a restaurant like we were okay and um because we were like casual but not you know you had to dress nice to come but it wasn't it was you know it wasn't formal living vita de loca you know yeah. vita you know ricky martin everything fucking black <laughs> thing but, but man, it was phenomenal. And, and it was completely a polar opposite, really, to my experience at La Berge, Yeah. Uh, which was crazy. And, and Chicano was very, you know, kind of, you know, it had its crazy moments, I have to say, but not anywhere near that. No <laughs> one was mean. No one was mean. You know, very, very nice. Oh, good. I thought I'd get my ass torn off, but I didn't care, you know, and instead it was really cool. But, um, I don't know a favorite dish. I don't know. I I, I really I, I didn't like breads and stuff for okay. a long time because like when I was in culinary school, right when we were getting ready to take our finals, we were in breads, and I remember bringing home brioche dough to bake off, and it was fantastic. And but anyways, I was working on my final for breads, and my mother had been in the hospital. She'd been sick that whole beginning of 89 and she wasn't very old she was only 69 yeah <clears throat> and anyways uh she died oh. and and i was proofing bread in the stove you know on the off the pilot light <laughs> and i got a call the next morning like six o'clock in the morning come down to the hospital uh your mom's in cardiac arrest and oh, I, was like, oh, I didn't even know what that meant right I mean, I knew one good. So I go down the, I go down there, blah blah blah. So anyways, me and my big brother Chris end up coming home at like two. He dropped me off at two o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking to the apartment, my apartment. And I'm like, 
Oh, it smells juicy. And now I remember the bread it was all overproofed. Oh, no. So, I mean, you know, I, I guess I kind of had, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in therapy, not to get too off the mark, but right. I um, kind of had a diversion to it. But I, I, I really like making brioche. And oh, during this, this virus crap, I, I had worked around, like, especially when I came down here, everybody was into making bread. And I worked with this guy named um, James Montoya, who had worked for Wolfgang Puck in San Francisco, worked for Emerald oh, wow. Lagasse in New Orleans. And he, man, he knew how to make sourdough bread, right? Oh, wow. He knew how to make great bread. And although I didn't like it, I really, you know, watched it a lot. Yeah. And then at another place we were at, we worked together and they had a big bread program. And I watched them do that and sometimes helped. And during this virus thing, I like, picked up one of my books and I'd been looking at bread recipes for a long time. And I just started making sourdough like crazy. Oh, wow. You know, I was like, I was able to do it and it came out fantastic. Oh. So I like that, but I, I like chocolate stuff, you know, I like making, um, I do this uh, kind of a take on a tiramisu that's dulce de leche, so it's kind of uh, oh. caramel, you know? Wow. Because when I moved down here, when I moved, when I moved down here, when I moved to Albuquerque, across the <laughs> continent, yeah. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I was, I, it was probably because I, I mean, I was because I fell in love with somebody, but. I'd watch his great chefs of the Southwest a lot. And I actually worked at this pretty well-known nationally restaurant called the Coyote Cafe for a while. Okay. And so anyways, I liked Dosa de Leche. We worked with it a lot at Chicona. And my mentor there, Mexican, and loved all those flavors. And and so um, it's a Dosa de Leche tirami soup. Wow, that sounds uh, amazing. It has like a coffee soaked cake and then um, a, a dulce de leche mousse with uh, strawberries. One time I did it, you can see it on my Instagram page. It has uh, macaron uh, shells all around it. Oh. I have to make that for my daughter and uh, her mom <laughs> and stuff. You know, it's like a, it's a prerequisite. It's coming up soon for Sarah, my daughter. Oh, um, man. Well, you know, August, all right. Now, on the flip side of that, if someone were to ask you what your signature album that you worked on is, what, what album would you point them to? Hmm. It's really hard. I know. Because when I, you know, I have a, I have a Facebook producers page. Yes. Um, and I'm always like saying when I put something up, which has been kind of hard to do in this virus. I have to admit, I'm, I'm like this one, one of my most favorite records. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I mean, honestly, man, I, I have to like what I'm doing. Oh yeah. And anytime I get into trouble. And there's only been like maybe two times in my producer career I've done that. And it kind of goes into restaurants too. You get a feeling, but you might just say, ah, you know. So I try not to do anything I don't like. Okay. But I mean, you know, the Fugazi stuff's great. For sure. I really like this one record. There's two records that I think really, really show a coming. Well, I don't know, it's more than that, but 
I'm really fond of this new Rising Suns record. Okay. Where I really, I mean, if it would have come out, I think we would have had, there's a song on there called Monday's Highs. section on it when i heard the demo i was like man this is like oasis meets that horn section that was playing with the band on that you know famous new york uh, uh new year's eve oh the last waltz yeah yeah and you know when they stand up you know the horn section they did that it just always reminded me of that so oh, i love that cool. song I, I really think it would have been a big single but it, it didn't the album didn't come out then because uh, a bunch of stuff was happening in the music business where people were like, uh, we don't have the money to promote it. You know, mm. somebody comes in and buys a record label, all these corporate mergers and junk. Yeah. But anyways, it's a fantastic record. Okay. There's another record by the Future Kings of Spain, this Irish group that uh, I worked with that has some amazing songs on it. There's a video on my website called Hanging Around. Dinosaur Jr. meets The Cure or something. Oh, he's so really, really, really beautiful, beautifully written album that we recorded at Stratosphere in New York. That um, that James Eha from the Pumpkins and, and notably uh, Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne and Ivy and he did all that. He wrote the theme song for you know Tom Hanks, uh, you know that thing you do. Oh um, yeah, he yeah. Title try for that. He unfortunately was a victim of COVID uh, very early. It's fucking shattering. Wow. And um, you know, I mean, the three albums I did with Girls Against Boys, I think are those are all really great. You know, okay. especially Friends Two, I think were really like just really started learning how to do this. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I mean. You know, all those albums you always see kind of connected to my name, but those other ones I mentioned, The Sons and 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 um, Future Kings, and, you know, there's been a bunch of them, you know? I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I pretty much like everything I've worked on. <laughs> oh, that's good. You know, I mean, I, I did a Dead Milkman record that oh, <laughs> yep. certainly didn't connect with their audience, yeah. but <laughs> there was some really beautiful stuff on there, that, and, and they had wanted to make an album that was a little more advanced, and... You know, I mean, I, I just, there's not much stuff that I've worked on that I don't like. 
that's good. That's good. And, to hear. You know, that, that's that's a thing. I mean, I I, I didn't get in this. Not, I I didn't become a musician. I didn't become a producer to make money, but it happened. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I I had recorded something in France in 1991 that was big. That Guy Pachotto from Fugazi had been sent to give to me by yeah. a band called Dirty Hands from Angers, and then. Angers in France, near the Loire, and we recorded in Bordeaux. And then, coming back from there, I walked into a place and heard the um, I heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit" by Nirvana, and it just hit me like the way "How Soon Is Now" did by the Smiths, where you're like, "Oh man, this is this is like a sea change tune." Yeah. And I came back and we did the Dead Milkman album, and then I met somebody who lived in New York. I moved to New York. And I went to see a very early version of Girls Against Boys, which the engineer I've been working with, Eli Janney, was in. And somebody from Geffen said, uh, this guy who kind of guested with them, who was in marketing, named Luke Wood, he said, Ted, you know, everyone knows they're not going to sign Fikazi, but they're probably anxious to work with the person who worked with them. And if ah. you, you need to get a producer, manager, and get your name out there and you're going to get a lot of work. And I was like, really? <laughs> and I loved making this album in France of all places where some people spoke English. Okay. And some people didn't really speak English very well in the band. Right. And they all know how to speak English. They sing <laughs> some form better than I speak French for sure. Yeah. You know, they, the French, you know, they want to speak. They want to, they want to speak English like the way they want you to speak French. Yeah. And, you know, it's not going to happen and they don't realize that no one in America wants them to speak or England or anywhere wants them to speak English without a French accent. Right. So it makes it sexy. Right. right. And cool, you know, and beautiful. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I was pretty excited about the idea of it and I put my name out there, man, and and John had already been out there, you know, I'm going to mention John because we were both kind of in the same boat right at the same time. And yeah. Got sent a lot of the same stuff. But, you know, like one of the first tapes I got sent was this band called Mighty Joe Young. Oh, That yeah. ended up being Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. And, but the only song that was on this demo was Wicked Garden. Oh, okay. And I, and, and one other song that made the album and I called Tom Carolyn I said, you know, I, I don't know if I spoke to Tom or I told my manager, I said, you know, but I think I spoke to Tom Carolyn, their A&R guy, and I was like, well, I like the song Wicked Garden a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I went out to Los Angeles after that album had been mega. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a meeting with Tom, and I walked into his office, and I said, wow, man, I certainly caught it wrong on that Mighty Joe Young tape tonight. <laughs> We just both laughed. He said, hey, Ted, if I tell you all the people that turned that album down, you'd laugh. Yeah. One person said it wasn't alternative enough. Oh, man. I, I heard a story of a friend of mine, Jordan Zetterosny from the band Blink of the Star. Mm -hmm. He was uh, he was telling me this story about he was talking to somebody at whatever. I don't remember which label he was he was signed to at the, in the mid or late 90s or so. And they they wanted his opinion on this band. So he gives a demo a listen. And he's like, you know, it's a little too British sounding to Brit pop. He's like, I, I, I kind of think everybody's getting a little tired of that. And so he's like, I'd, I'd pass if I were you. And they go, like, oh, okay, thanks. 
and it was Coldplay. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, <laughs> I tell you what, man, I got a good, I, I got a good one like that from the from the Tommy Keenum with T Bone and uh, no. the, you know the recording from T Bone and with T Bone and Don. T Bone came to our room the first night to hang out, and he said, "I want you guys to listen to something. Put on a cassette. It was Will the Wolf Survive by Los Lobos." Oh wow! And I think they just finished mixing it; hadn't even been mastered yet. And we were all, you know, so the song ends, and 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 we all do wow. And he said, "What, what do you think of that?" And it's, it's a fucking hit. Yeah, it's great, it's amazing. You know, I, I didn't know if we said it was a hit. We said it's an amazing song. Yeah. And so he said, "I don't know, man. You know, it's like will the will the huh will the what survive?" <laughs> so, dude. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> Nobody ever gets the lyrics right when they listen to this stuff anyway. Yeah, it's exactly. Just, it's great. And so then he has a hit, you know, gigantic. Yeah. Set for like the next three. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a great story. Uh, was Melissa Optimar in Blinker to start in the beginning? Was I'm sorry, what was that? Melissa Oftemar. She yeah later she, went on the hole and Yeah and the pumpkins. Yeah, she played with Jordan from, I remember that band, they're Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah, from uh, Ontario, Pembroke. Um Blinker the Star. Blinker the Star, yeah. Jordan's a good friend of mine. He's uh Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh they Melissa was in an early version of Blinker. And at this point, oh, right. he's still releasing music. It's basically just him, though. Right. Right. Okay. No one ever knows. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you, you think uh, the only record I've ever been right about was the Triven Daisy record with I Got a Girl. When, when I was in pre-production with them, I said... They played it for me. We might have worked on it a little bit. Uh, this is when I met them. I went down and did like three days of hanging out with them in the rehearsal place and okay. worked maybe on a couple of songs. And I said, it, it could have been during pre-production for the album after they asked me to do the album. And I said, whatever you do, do not record this song if you don't like it. Okay. Because if I only knows what they're doing, and I think they do, this is really going to go. I mean, I hate to sound like a cliche, <laughs> but it's just a feeling I have. And I don't want you to record that song and not like it because you're going to hear a lot of it, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I've already read stories, you know, Blind Melon hating Sunshine Girl or whatever that song is called. Oh, B-Girl, yeah, um, No Rain. You hear all this stuff. And so then the album came out and the song took off and they were driving across the country and you know they started hearing the song like twice an hour three times an hour <laughs> yeah. and you know, I think it really spooked them and they ended up not wanting to cross it over to Top 40 Radio wow which was a drag you know man yeah but I mean the album sold 250,000 copies in I don't know 20 weeks it's a lot god I'm pretty sure it was going to. I mean, it's it has sold a lot. I you know, I you know now of course everything streams. But yeah, you can kind of tell from what comes through that you know there's still people listening. But you know you you can't really guess this stuff. I mean, I've had really good feelings about a couple of records, and Trippin' Daisy was one of them. That new Rising Sun's record was the other. 
Well, I'm I'm gonna go check that out because the way you, you described it, that and um, Future Kings, Future Kings of Spain, yes. Dinosaur Junior meets the Cure. I gotta that you sold me on that, but man, I have kept you for quite a while tonight. I want to thank you so yeah, much for spending so much time. No, 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 no. It's been great. I love hearing these stories. That's that's why I do this podcast, is so I can hear some awesome stories like this. <laughs> But well, you're really a lot of fun to talk with. Oh, thank uh, you, you man. Know, uh, it's really, um, really nice. I appreciate uh, that. Thank you. Very at ease, like talking to an old friend. Oh, very nice. That means the world to me, man. Thank you so much. Where can people follow you on Instagram? Where can they find the Rising Suns music? Uh, New Rising Suns, you can find um, on iTunes. Uh, maybe I know it's on Bandcamp. Okay, love Bandcamp. Uh, Future Kings of Spain. I don't know if it's available here, but I know you can hear it on YouTube. I'll check that out. There's another band I'd really love you to listen to because I know you enjoy music a lot. I love it. This band I did in Paris in 2010 called Backbone Party. Okay. And, and the lead singer is Lebanese but he was schooled in the United States okay and the rest of the guys Parisian we recorded this album in 20 days oh wow and and then Eli makes it in Brooklyn and Eli Janney and I'm telling you man it's one of the it's one of the best things I've ever I know again <laughs> but it's truly a fantastic record it's all in English Oh, uh, which is probably why it never came out because French labels will not sign a band that doesn't sing in French usually. Oh, jeez. Noir Désir was the exception because they sang a bit and Bertrand wrote, the lead singer and songwriter, wrote lyrics in French and English. Okay. Um, you know, for different songs, whatever served it better. Right, right. And, but the Backbone Party... Man, you really like it. I think it's called Beirutopia. I love your dress when you're a mess in their face. I bite your lip if it calls for me. I hope you see that I'm not so Okay. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's got some great, great stuff on it. It's like kind of like Nine Inch Nails meets, uh, but it isn't, but it's more melodic than that, you know? Okay. I mean, there's aspects of it. There's also some stuff by them on YouTube. Okay, good. You can find it. I was going to ask. And I think you really like it, man. Uh, you know, these are these are records that no one's heard. And it's been great that that Matt's helped me with this website. I mean, he he did it. Oh, awesome. he said you need a website. And then you know, IG, I I did a regular page that had a lot of my cats and <laughs> cooking and and music on it. And then we we put up a nicely music page n-i-c-e-l-e-y music and that has all music awesome. there's stuff on backbone party there too okay and you know i so i get to feature some of these things and on the producer page on facebook that that no, no, no one's heard of you know everyone's kind of familiar not everyone but people are certainly familiar with gazi oh yeah 
and Shutter to Think and Jawbox and Girls Against Boys, but yeah, but these sure. other things that you know I did internationally and and a few that never came out are just really worth hearing. I think I will, I will definitely check them out because I love finding new stuff. I especially love finding new stuff that nobody else knows. Great, thank you so much, Mark. I really, really love talking. No matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.